From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary stranger, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. A former police reporter, Scott Reeder, will be here in a few moments. He's the producer of a new serial-esque uh, true crime podcast uh, featured on NPR, National Public Radio, and it's uh, debuting this month. Uh, it's called Suspect Convictions, and it's, as I say, it's a serial. It's uh, following one true crime story in particular. It's rather grisly, um, Rock Island, uh, Illinois is the setting, and Scott will be here in just a few moments to share the details. And, uh, Albert, you raised a good point uh, earlier. We'll have to bring this up with Scott, and that is how you can serialize a story when the case is still in progress. I mean, obviously, uh, we'll find out from Scott, but that that was an excellent point you raised, because this is an ongoing trial. This guy's been convicted, um, or sorry, he'd been tried three times, and now a new trial, um, I think in February, and then they're supposed to... Uh, when was the uh, the jury expected to a conviction or a uh, uh, June June a um, a verdict right in June anyway Scott Reader standing by suspect convictions uh, now uh, oh what's in the box uh, is coming up shortly as well and if you want to play along at home we'll do the reveal probably at the uh, the bottom of the hour. And uh, Ian in the other room, and uh, Ryan as well. I'll introduce these folks in a moment. But um, uh, I want you to focus your attention to that lovely humidor and uh, the the contents thereof. What's in the box coming up shortly? First, uh, let me introduce the boys in the band on the Gibson Flying V guitar, our fine rockabilly friend, Ian Robertson, who is my technical producer. On the other side of the glass, twisting knobs, dials, and doodads. Not sure what doodads are. Nobody uses that expression anymore. But you probably would, Ian, because you're from a you're from a bygone era. You are a time traveler. You are the raw, the real John Teeter. You got. Uh, let's. Can people see him on the uh, the hangout? Yes, there he is. Uh, on the Rickenbacker bass guitar and occasionally the theremin, my remote viewer story producer Albert Vinzel. Albert, how are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Uh, this is the cutoff date, actually. Uh, those of you who don't know, January 15th, after this, you are not allowed, under penalty of law, to wish anyone a Happy New Year. All right? So get it said. And uh, sitting in with the band uh, tonight, our intern, he helps produce my weekly radio feature, Strange Planet, on the Hammond B3 organ, Ryan White. Ryan, welcome. Uh, thank you, Richard. Hello. Happy New Year. Uh, now, we have a quick update. Uh, a couple of months ago... Was it a couple of months we had Thomas Colbert on, Albert? Uh, Thomas is a, uh, a former TV newsman. He's, nor- he's now sort of a, a citizen sleuth. He uh, assembled this cold case team of former FBI agents, and they believe they've identified D.B. Cooper. This was the famous hijacker. It took a suitcase bomb. It, it really wasn't a suitcase bomb, but he pretended it was a suitcase bomb aboard a Boeing 727. In Portland, Oregon, it was bound for Seattle. Forced the, or the plane landed. He, everyone got off uh, in exchange for two hundred thousand dollars and a parachute. And then DB Cooper jumped out of the back of the plane after it took off uh, somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. 
with $200,000 never seen from or never seen or heard from again. And the FBI co- uh, closed the case last summer. And then, as I mentioned, Thomas Colbert uh, assembled the uh, the cold case team and they they think they've cracked it. And they believe it's this – they wrote a book about it that's been very well lawyered. Uh, and the um, the man they believe is D.B. Cooper, still alive, living in San Diego uh, by the name of Robert Rackstraw. And uh, now there is a, uh, a new development in the case. And uh, let me see if I can pull it up here quickly. It comes uh, – well, I'm reading it, uh, the version uh, published on uh, Inquisitor.com. And – the thing is, I'm not. We, we should get a hold of Thomas Colbert and get an update because I'm not sure whether the citizen sleuths that are mentioned in the story, whether that's the same Thomas Colbert exactly. However, here's what it says: An amateur research group have announced they have found some clues to the DB Cooper hijacking of a Northwest Orient Boeing 727, and now they need some help from the public in order to finally solve this case. What is the new information, and who can help this group? According to the Washington television station King 5, some new clues to the unsolved D.B. Cooper hijacking have been uncovered using very modern technology. The Seattle FBI-appointed research group called Citizen Sleuths, and again, I don't know if that's Thomas Colbert or not, have taken the J.C. Penny clip-on tie worn by D.B. Cooper and had it analyzed. Using a, an electron microscope, the team found over 100,000 particles on the tie, including cerium, strontium, sulfide, and pure titanium. Uh, the team did not mention the name of any other particles found on the tie, instead focusing on these three particles that the powerful microscope found. This is important because during the time, very few people worked near these elements, according to lead researcher Tom Kay. Lead researcher. Okay, so this may not be Colbert's, Colbert's team. Uh, these are what they call rare earth elements. Uh, they're used in very narrow fields for very specific things. Now the team wonders if perhaps D.B. Cooper had worked for Boeing or was a contractor for the aeronautics company. The tie went with them into these manufacturing environments for sure, so he was not one of the people running these manufacturing machines. He was either an engineer or a manager in one of the plants. Now the research team is asking for the public's help. They believe that someone will read about the three elements found and know exactly what the project was and perhaps even who could be D.B. Cooper. Someone may be able to look at these those particles and say, oh my gosh, I know what this, that means, having those particles on the tie. And of course, the unsolved case occurred 45 years ago. The hijacking occurred on the 30-minute flight between the two northwest cities of Portland, Oregon, and Seattle, Washington, on the eve of Thanksgiving. Flight 305 was two-thirds full when Dan Cooper appro- approached a flight attendant with a note he had that he had a bomb and was hijacking the plane. Eventually, he was given the $200,000, worth over $1.2 million today, and he requested four parachutes. He, he then let all of the passengers off the plane. Now, um, What's interesting is Colbert had figured out, or someone had figured out, that $200,000 in, I think they were 20 denominations of 20, that's all you could carry as a parachutist without it ruining your glide pattern. So obviously this individual had to have experience as a paratrooper, and indeed Robert Rackstraw was in Vietnam, received paratroop uh, training and so forth, paratrooper training. All right, just a little update, but we'll, uh, we'll have to get uh, uh, Tom Colbert back on. And uh, discuss that. Um, oh, want to mention this as well. Fans of my TV show, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, uh, 
Four seasons, of course, aired across Canada on Vision TV, right here, part of the Zoomer family, Vision TV. The website went down for a while, but I've rebuilt the website and relaunched it. It's now live, theconspiracyshow.com. I'm talking about the TV program now, theconspiracyshow.com. You can also get to it by going to strangeplanet.ca, and then you click on the TV section. Theconspiracyshow.com, uh, there's an episode, uh, episode guide there, all four seasons. And uh, if you're in Canada, you can watch some of the episodes, but it's geo-blocked elsewhere. Uh, you can also check out the online store. T-shirts, mugs, phone cases, hoodies, sweatshirts, all available. So if you're a fan of the TV show, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, why not show it off by purchasing uh, some of the merchandise? It helps support our work on the show. Uh, all right, very quickly, Albert Vinzel, what's in the box? Let uh, let people see the box, and uh, if you want to play along at home, ladies and gentlemen, please use the hashtag, hashtag TCS, that's TCS as in The Conspiracy Show, remote, hashtag TCS Remote, Albert. A lot of people are going to get cigar because of the type of box it's in. But yeah, I think that that may be closest. Am I? I get like a candle or something you light. You're seeing something long, cylindrical. That's. I'm not even a remote viewer. You study the protocols, Albert. You're supposed to allow the image to form in your head. You don't just blurt out an answer. Okay, work on that a little bit. let let Ryan, our intern, have a go here. What do you think? What you is know, in the box? It's funny. Albert said it was a candle. I had been feeling something glass, like maybe a candlestick holder. So something glass like that. All right. And uh, Ian, on the other side of the glass, what's in the box? Uh, I was picturing something uh, in your pocket, maybe money or maybe a wallet. Money or a wallet. All right. Uh, you're all sort of way off. <laughs> we uh, Incidentally... Um, we're not going to do the remote ex- viewing experiment um, with uh, Douglas Cottrell. He's joining us in the second hour. But we'll reveal what's in the box at the bottom of the hour. And uh, I just wanted to remind you that uh, in the second hour, Canada's Edgar Casey, the man with X-ray eyes, Dr. Douglas James Cottrell will be here with his predictions for 2017, earth changes and uh, geopolitics, the stock market, the price of gold, and and so forth. All right. Uh, to the main entree, if you're a fan of true crime and radio, I think you're going to enjoy the next 40 minutes or so. The streetlights come on, it's getting dark. She's supposed to be home before the streetlights come on. She wasn't home yet, so I'm thinking she's just out there playing with a friend. She never came home. Over two decades ago, police reporter Scott Reeder was one of the first to arrive at the scene of a fire. When he arrived, it was discovered that a nine-year-old girl had been tragically doused in gasoline and set on fire. Soon after, an African-American was convicted of the murder. In fact, he's been tried and convicted twice of the murder, Both, but both convictions have been overturned. There is new evidence that the police may have tampered with and even manufactured evidence in that case. Uh, the police hid the fact that the main witness in the case was actually an undercover police informant with 78 past police reports that were hidden. Of course, uh, the law requires that this information be disclosed, but it never was. In addition, there was a, a known white supremacist on the jury, and evidence pointing toward a different suspect was hidden from the detective working the case. What's especially uh, exciting and engaging about this case is that there will actually be a conclusion 
There will be several days of court hearings in February, and the jury, jury will render a verdict in June. Joining us now, the producer of Suspect Convictions and the former police reporter uh, mentioned earlier, Scott Reeder. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing great. Good to be here. Great to Happy have you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Last day of the year I can say it, I guess. That's right. You got in right on the cutoff. Okay, Scott, thank you. This is a very disturbing case. Um, we're we're going to get into it. I just wanted to say hello. We're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, you'll walk us through the particulars sure. of this grisly case. Uh, and um, and then we'll find out a little bit about this podcast that is uh, it debuted this month or is debuting this month. On, on Monday. On Monday. There you go. So, Suspect convinci- Convictions, the producer, Scott Reeder, right with a, right here with us on The Conspiracy Show. We'll come back with more, and we'll also reveal the contents of the box. What's in the box? Hashtag TCS Remote. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up? must come down and it lands on the conspiracy show with richard Serrett. welcome back scott reader is with us the producer of a brand new podcast suspect convictions scott this is a case that dates back uh, well it's over a quarter century now 1990 rock island illinois you refer to the quad cities and they sort of straddle the uh, illinois iowa border don't they the Mississippi River uh, flows right between Rock Island, Illinois, and Moline, Illinois, on one side, and Bettendorf, Iowa, and Davenport, Iowa, on the other side. Okay, so take us uh, back to 1990 and this grisly crime scene. You were a police reporter at the time, and you arrived on the scene. And uh, just tell us what you saw, and then sort of take us through a thumbnail sketch of of the uh, of the crime and the, and the trial. Sure. Uh, I was the night cop reporter for the Quad City Times. It was about 9 o'clock at night, and part of my job was to drive from one police station to another and go through all the reports and um, do those sort of things. That was a routine thing. And back in the days before cell phones, we carried these gigantic um, walkie-talkies with us, and I also carried a police scanner where I could monitor the traffic uh, going back and forth to different police cars and different communities. And I was driving down the road in downtown Davenport, Iowa, and I heard on the radio, on the police scanner, there was a um, um, small fire scene at a school playground at nine o'clock at night. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't think much of it uh, because it was kind of a, a rough neighborhood. A lot of folks burned trash in the neighborhood and the in the vacant lots. I just thought, oh, this is just some somebody burning some trash or doing something like that. And then all of a sudden on the other, uh, on my walkie talkie, the uh, city editor's voice comes on and says, Scott, there's a fire at a school playground. Go check it out. And I'm kind of rolling my eyes like, oh, this is not worth going to. This is just dumb. So, but I drove up there. Uh, I was up on the top of a river bluff in Davenport, Iowa. And I got there. This is how I remember it. Now there's some divergence in memories, you know, after 26 years, you know, you can expect that, but I got there at the same time as the first police officer. The two of us got out of our cars together, and we're walking across the playground towards where we saw some smoke rising from some tall grass on the edge of the, of the school playground. And we got about two feet from the fire, and we looked down, and instead of being a trash fire, 
it was a child that had been doused with gasoline and set on fire. Oh, Lord. It was the last thing in the world I expected. I just kind of reeled back, like, what on earth have I walked into? I mean, you know, I feel the bile just coming up in my throat. And I was like, kind of got weak to my knees and like, where am I? What, what What's going on here? It was just the last thing in the world I expected. We, you know, things just kind of got stranger as the night went on. The, the fire department arrived shortly thereafter. The, the detectives were coming in um, from all over. What I remember next was the uh, firefighters walked over with um, a um, fire extinguisher with water in it. And it was just like dead silence on the scene. I never seen anything like it. It was almost like watching some sort of religious anointing or something to me. Right. As they just very gently extinguished the flames on this body. And, you know, I interviewed the medical examiner who arrived next and we're talking and, you know, he says, I think it's a 12 year old girl. I, I think, you know, that, that's what I could tell. Cause I could, looking at it, she was shrouded in melted plastic garbage bags and, had been badly burned, so I couldn't really tell the gender of the child or anything by just looking at it. You just uh, knew it was a small person. I just knew it was a small person is all I could tell. Right. And then we had, all of a sudden, this is uh, about 9.30, all three of the local TV stations showed up, Channel 4, 6, and 8, ABC, NBC, and CBS. They set up their cameras and tripods about four or five feet from the body, clicked on the Klieg lights, zoomed in on the smoldering corpse, and broadcast it live into every living room in are the you, whole community of 250,000. Are I've you never kidding seen, me? Are you kidding me? I've never me? seen it. Yes. I mean, I've never seen anything like this before or since, but they it was like all judgment just got thrown to the wind. And they were literally taking the most horrible thing I have seen in my life, and I hope I ever see in my life, and sharing it with every home in that community. And That is unheard of. It is very much unheard of. I mean, I never witnessed it in any other context. So... Let me just uh, remind uh, Scott, let me just remind listeners, Scott Reeder is with us, uh, the producer of a, a brand new podcast, which debuts Monday. It's called... It actually debuted last Monday. Uh, my apologies. It debuted last Monday. It'll air again mon- ne- tomorrow. Correct? Mm-hmm. And well, it's... It's, uh, it's available on iTunes. Uh, I am happy to say that on Saturday, it rose up to number three in the world on iTunes. All right. And it's, rankings. it's called Suspect Convictions. And um, now it also it also airs on NPR, correct? Well, I did it in, in conjunction with an NPR station. I, I was see. writing a book on the case, um, and the story goes: I was driving down the highway with my wife, um, and I'd been working on the book for several months. And I'm listen, we're listening to serial, and right. I said to my wife, "This is a riveting story, but my murder is so interesting too. I bet I could do a podcast on this. It never occurred to me." So the next day, I call, picked up the phone and called up a friend that worked at an NPR station. And and, then, and I, before the week's out, we cut a deal to uh, create a podcast together. I have a full-time producer I'm working with who's excellent. Her name's Lacey Scarmana. And um, we pre, re, uh, spent the last several months just using um, 
the tapes that I uh, acquired for the book for all the interviews I've done to okay. create this podcast. All right. So the uh, nine-year-old Rock Island girl uh, murdered and then her body horrifically. I mean, every aspect of this case is just terrible, obviously. Uh, set ablaze. Now, uh, because we're tight on time, the, the the suspect in this case, an African-American by the name of Stanley Liggins, he has been tried and con- convicted... Uh, twice, but both convictions overturned. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. All right. Very quickly, how how, how did the uh, police arrive at the conclusion uh, of this suspect being involved? Well, the main reason they focused on him initially was proximity. He was somebody known to the family. We found out in course room testimony uh, that uh, he had been uh, supplying cocaine to the parents for them to sell on the um, west end of Rock Island. It's a really rough area. Uh, so he had, and we also know he was a bad guy. I mean, he had served time in prison for armed robbery in, uh, in Mississippi. He, uh, he was just a, a rough figure. Um, he had stabbed a man in prison. Uh, he had been acquitted on uh, murder charges um, on grounds of self-defense. But he was a tough guy. He had, a, and he was around the family quite a bit. He was a frequent guest at their home, that sort of thing. All right, and we, we, so quite, we should we, we can't forget obviously the, the the victim in this case, the nine-year-old girl. Do we uh, do we identify her? Yes, we do. All right, and, devote an entire episode to uh, to uh, looking at her life. And who was this and poor child? Who uh, her name? Her name was Jennifer Ann Lewis, uh, a very precious child. Uh, she'd lived a very rough life. Um, she'd moved her, her um, she'd had several stepfathers um, in her life. They, she'd moved around quite a bit. The family was very poor. Her parents had met uh, while they were in juvenile detention in Des Moines, Iowa together. Uh, it's a very tragic story. I mean, she'd had a rough life. Um, no, no question about it. In fact, the home she was living in at the time, uh, she'd, um, of her death, um, didn't have any electricity, didn't have running water. Oh, it was, it was a, it was a difficult situation. So the Rock, Rock Island, Illinois, the Quad Cities, this is a, this is a, a depressed area. Well, at that time, it was um, an area that had been extraordinarily prosperous that had suddenly hit hard times. I don't know if you remember when the when the it's a, tr- it's a classic Rust Belt community. The right. farm economy fell out, uh, fell, the bottom fell out of the farm economy in the late 80s, early 90s, and suddenly, um, this, this community that manufactured lots of farm equipment had people who were making very good money were unemployed. The community was struggling a bit, but it's, it's a, it's a very nice community. I, uh, I lived there for 10 years and I very much liked it. Scott Reeder is with us, former police reporter and the producer of Suspect Convictions, a brand new podcast uh, produced in conjunction with uh, NPR, and it airs Mondays. Uh, and we'll tell you a little later again how to get a hold of the podcast, how to subscribe. Suspect Convictions, and it involves the um, this horrific criminal uh, case involving a the, the horrific murder of a poor nine year old uh, girl in Rock Island, and. Uh, the man uh, ultimately arrested, Stanley Liggins, uh, has been tried and convicted twice. Both convictions overturned. Now, I have to ask you, Scott, 
how up here in Canada, uh, when there is a trial going on, often there's uh, there's usually a, there's a media blackout. You can't discuss the uh, the case. Um, how is it that you're able to to serialize this while the case is going on? I mean, there, there's going to be a hearing in February, perhaps a a verdict in June, and yet you're you're producing this serial. Well. The U.S. law on this is very much different than it is in Canada or the United Kingdom, for that matter. Um, one of the things that's a guarantee to the U.S. Constitution, in fact, is a public trial, mm-hmm. which means that uh, what our U.S. Supreme Court has um, interpreted to mean that justice is best dispensed in a very public manner. So there's no restrictions on media coverage, on trials, that sort of thing, um, so it's very it's very much standard practice to report on a um, suspect before trial that sort of thing, which I know in Canada is not so common. Right. Well, yeah. To be honest with you, I prefer I prefer the way you do it down there. I I, I believe I I agree. I think that justice um, not only needs to be done, it needs to be seen to be done, mm-hmm. and um, I, I think people have a right, obviously, to. Um, you know, to partake in that system, even if they're not, you know, sitting in the courtroom at the time. Uh, so, again, Stanley Liggins was um, arrested. Did you say that he was he was selling drugs to this poor girl's parents because they were they were yeah, kind of small time dealers? Supply, according to their testimony in the first trial, he was supplying cocaine to them for them to sell for, uh, sell for him on the west end of Rock Island, and then they would provide the cash back to him. So they, right. he was kind of their broker. Um, so to speak, to to um, to get it out to them in, in, into the community. Now, this is before DNA testing, uh, I believe. Yeah, it was just very much at the very, very beginning of DNA testing. It was not a common practice right. by any means of right. time. So he had opportunity. Um, he had access, as you say, so opportunity because he was known to the family. He lived in mm-hmm. close proximity. What about motive? Well, we know that this little girl had been sexually assaulted, and we know that um, she had been strangled, and then, of course, doused with gasoline and set on fire. So the assumption has always been that the motive for kidnapping the child and sexually assaulting her was sexual in nature. This is a sexual homicide. Um, But, you know, so that's the assumption on it. So, as I was saying, the, the prosecutors and the police focused in on Stanley very early on. Um, he agreed to take a polygraph test. He took it, and I'm told by the police that he did not pass it. And at that point, they really focused in on him. And the, the problem is, there wasn't a lot of evidence against him. I mean, other than he had proximity and he was not a good person, but... There wasn't a lot as far as witnesses, that sort of thing. Uh, the prosecutor, uh, who I know well, said, you know, I asked everybody in my office, should we charge this guy? And he said, almost everybody in the office said, no way. There's not enough evidence against him. He said, but you know, I a- answer to the voters in, in the United States. Mm-hmm. In every state but New Jersey, the prosecutors are elected. And he said, I felt like... I was accountable to them, and I needed to get this guy off the streets. So he charged him. Now, this is where it gets a little bit weird. Um, about three days after they charge him, a witness comes forward. 
and she says that she saw taillights near a fu- near the fire. She didn't know if there was a crime going on there. She just knew there was a fire. She looked out the window of the house that she was at that day, about two blocks from the school playground. And she said she'd recognize those taillights anywhere. Flash forward to the first trial. The police roll in the back half of this guy's car. And when the jury comes in, they pull off the, um, the shroud on top of it like they're unveiling a statue. They turn the lights off. There's lots of drama to this. And they uh, use a little motorcycle battery to turn on the taillight. And the woman's sitting there on the, on the witness stand. She points at the uh, taillights and said, I'd recognize those anywhere. And she became the key witness. You know, the person who saw the taillights that um, compelled, you know, the jurors were just riveted by. And she's for the she de- she's a witness for the defense, correct? No, she's a witness for the prosecution. Oh, for the prosecution. Ah. I recognize the taillights of the car that the, the defendant was driving. Okay. That had to be his car. It had to be him. Ah. So she became the a lot when talking to jurors that were involved in the case. They put a lot of credibility in this woman because she, you know, uh, there was no there was a perception she had no reason to, to to lie about it. I mean, and what we find out twenty years later, what was never disclosed to the defense or to um, the jurors, of course, was this woman had been on the before the trial had been a paid police informant. In fact, she'd been paid, I think it was something like eighty-seven, eighty-eight times. Uh, and according to the um, appellate court uh, or briefs before the appellate court, the detective that had uh, been in charge of the murder investigation had signed the vouchers for uh, these um, uh, pay- payments to her. Okay, so, I got to jump in here, Scott. We'll, we're going to sure. take a timeout. So, sure. uh, Stanley Liggins. Accused of murdering nine-year-old Jennifer Ann Lewis, this poor child whose life, horrible life, cut brutishly short, Rock Island, Illinois, and uh, now a uh, a true crime podcast dedicated to telling this story. Scott Reeder, the producer, with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, uh, welcome back. We'll get back to our conversation with Scott Reeder. He is uh, producing a five-part or has produced a five-part podcast uh, series uh, produced in conjunction with a Quad City uh, public radio station, an NPR station. They're exploring new questions in an old murder case. Uh, the podcast is called Suspect Convictions, and it takes a look at the 1990 murder trial of a nine-year-old girl, Jennifer uh, Lewis of Rock Island, Illinois, and the man twice convicted of her abduction, rape, and murder. Uh, before we get to that, uh, Albert, uh, do we, what do we have on, uh, on the Twitter uh, for uh, hashtag TCS Remote? What's in the box? Sally says a deck of cards. She says like a, a dark rectangle about a quarter inch in width and height, and mm-hmm. she says a deck of cards. Nope. Uh, Kula Ellison says Schrodinger's cat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Is it dead? Is it alive? We're not sure. Okay, next. Uh, Ricardo says it's a stapler. All right. Um, Mike R. says an ice scraper. Okay. And uh, Anonymous says it's hope. 
like <laughs> right, Pandora's, Pandora's box. box. There you go. <laughs> and a person named Tony says a woman's head. Oh, Lord. That's just, okay. I wish I hadn't read that one. All right. Uh, you know, we're going to have to do a remote uh, remote crash course and remote viewing on this program, I think. All right. Reveal what's in the box. Nobody was even uh, close. Okay. Hold on. I'll take it off Twitter. All right. Albert's running the camera, and uh, there we go. Oh. There we go. An airplane. Yes, a, a toy, toy, a toy airplane. Yeah, toy jetpack. A right. U.S. flag on it. One of my little guys threw that in there and said, "Here, Daddy, see if they can guess this one." Okay, uh, that's. It. We'll we'll try it again next week. What's in the box? Again, you use the hashtag TCS Remote. Thanks for all uh, for playing at home, and uh, let's get back to Scott Reader. Okay, Scott, the the case. Um, I mean, it ended in a conviction, right? How many how many jurors? Twelve jurors. Twelve jurors, and the makeup of the jury. The jury. All white. What I wanted to tell you though is, this woman made the testimony. We don't find out for twenty more years. Oh, this was the paid, paid police, police informant. The, the paid yes. police informant. Yes. Sure. And we also found out twenty years later that the police had um, apparently sat on um, about seventy-eight police reports. Now, the prosecution swears up and down that they were turned over. The uh, defense swears up and down they didn't get it. A court in Iowa determined that, no, they did not get it. But in the police reports were was one particular report that struck my attention, and this is according to what was in court documents. There was a woman that came forward to the police the day, Jennifer was, the day after Jennifer's body was found, and she said, hey, um, now, I stress this is an allegation. It has not been verified. It may be true. It may not be true. But this was in the report that was not, that was, the court said was not turned over. She said, I buy cocaine from this girl's stepfather. And I, she said, um, I didn't have enough money to buy cocaine last week, the week before the murder. So she said she went to the uh, police and offered up her uh, video camera, or went to the, to the dealer, I'm sorry, and offered up her video camera and said, hey, um, I'll give you this as collateral if you give me the cocaine now, and when I have the money, I'll give you the money back, give you the, give it to you, and then you can give me the camera back. And she alleges that he told her, this is the girl's stepfather, I could use this to take pornographic photos with me and my stepdaughter. Oh. Well, it's worse and worse. It's a bizarre thing to say, but it's a curious thing for it to come out so soon. This is before it became public in the community that the girl has been sexually assaulted or anything else. It's a very interesting thing that is to be coming out, and um, that was a, it's something that certainly raises some serious questions. I'll say, to say the least. Yeah, I say. Um, I mean, so that was one of the things. So they, the Iowa courts looked at this and said, "Hey, this should have been disclosed that this woman was on the police payroll. It should have been disclosed. These reports should have been turned over. Because of this, we're going to give a whole new trial for this this defendant." Right. And, Let me ask you and, before we get to the second trial. Um, uh, now, Liggins. 
was he not also um, charged with molesting another nine-year-old girl like a month before? That's correct. If she was another nine-year-old girl. In Milan, which is in the same area, right? Actually, uh, in, 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 in Illinois, we pronounce it uh, in an odd way. We say Milan. Milan, okay. M-I-L-N. I, I said Milan, as in, as in yeah. Spain. As in Italy. But Italy, yeah. sorry. Milan, Italy. Right. But, uh, yes, uh, he was charged. Uh, he was out on $5,000 bail at the time. And then um, this is another reason why the police focused in on him real quickly. Sure. I mean, yes, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence, but on the face of it, it looks almost like an open and shut case. Almost. I mean, well, if you go by the issue of proximity and the issue of character, yes, that's you you would you would think that would poke more towards him, but when you look at evidence of, a, of a, any particular person actually having done it, there were no witnesses that said they saw him do it. Right. There were there was no DNA evidence. There was a lot of things that you would. They they took over ten thousand forensic samples from the crime scene, from this guy's uh, uh, hotel room where he is living, from the car that he was driving. They found absolutely nothing linking him to Jennifer Lewis. Uh, what kind of a defense did he mount? Was did he have a, a a public defender? Was it provided for him? Or, or? yeah, he, has, he was provided with a public defender. I would say both of his uh, attorneys uh, were superb. I mean, uh, one shortly after he um, uh, defended this case, he went on to become a judge, served 20 years as a judge, and uh, was very well respected. Uh, the other attorney in the, for the second trial. Also very well respected in the community, a very experienced uh, uh, attorney as well. So he had very good uh, legal counsel. I think. Did Did Liggins take the stand? No, he did not. Need a trial. All right, we'll take a time out. Scott Reeder stays with us, former police reporter and the producer of a five part podcast a serial, true true crime podcast serial called Suspect Convictions. Available Mondays. The first one aired last Monday. And uh, you can uh, listen in on iTunes, and we'll tell you also how to uh, how else to uh, subscribe. Suspect Convictions. Producer Scott Reeder, back with more in a moment on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. Uh, programming note next week on the uh, the big show, the big transmission, Mitch Batros from The Science of Cycles. Uh, we'll talk about uh, earthquakes and uh, climate change. I had him uh, on Coast to Coast with me uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, we did uh, three hours. Terrific, terrific program. And so I thought I'd bring him back on this uh this program, and uh, again, that's Mitch Batros uh, from the Science of Cycles. And uh, then the following week, we'll talk about gro- how to grow food on Mars with a, a gentleman from the University of Guelph, how to grow food on Mars. All right, I'm just trying to figure out how to grow tomatoes in my backyard, never mind the red planet. However, uh, we are with uh, Scott Reeder, who is the producer of a five-part podcast series, True Crime, it's called Suspect Convictions, and uh, this is a, a horrific case going back to 1990, the uh, the murder 
of uh, Jennifer Lewis of Rock Island, Illinois, and the man twice convicted of her abduction, rape, and murder, Stanley Liggins, an African-American. Uh, now, the did it come out in the first trial? Uh, the first conviction was overturned because there was information. One of the key witnesses turned out to be a police informant. Uh, in which trial, uh, Scott, was it revealed that one of the jurors or one of the witnesses was a white supremacist? Well, it was never revealed. I found it out. Oh, you found um, that out. Yep. I was, I, one of the things I went back to is I, I went and started interviewing jurors to find out what they considered important and what they, you know, why, how they came to the, the uh, verdict. And I noticed that there was a, um, white South African that had just recently immigrated to the United States on the, on the, on the first jury. And I thought that was curious. Because you got to remember, this is 1990, right after the end of apartheid in uh, South Africa. And I thought, well, okay, what's this guy doing in the United States? I mean, what prompted him to immigrate, that sort of thing? That was curious to me. So I called him up. He's now living in Florida. And we got to talking, and he goes, he's got this thick South African accent, and we're chatting. And I said, i got to ask you, because you're from South Africa, you know, do you consider yourself a racist? And he goes, oh, no, no, I think that blacks worldwide have gotten a, have gotten a bad lot in life. I mean, they've, they've been treated badly. And he's explaining to me that, you know, no, he's not racist. And then he adds that we all originated from Africa. You know, our skin was all, all of our skin was originally black. And then he explains that some people migrated out of Africa to Europe and their skin became paler. And their brains became larger. And he's explaining this to me, and he said, he said, so he's explaining how that the Europeans had become more sophisticated and more intelligent. And I'm going, oh gosh, we got a problem here, I'm thinking. Right. And then, then I say, then I say to him, well, what about this witness that testified? Uh, you know, if you hadn't known that she was a police informant, uh, and was on the police payroll, would you have would it changed your opinion on things? And she, he said something to the effect of, oh, no, because, you see, she's African, she's black, and black people don't scheme against other black people. Ah, they just scheme right. against white people. Right, right. And I'm going, Did you get oh, this on okay. tape? Did you get it on tape? Got it all on tape. Okay. But, guys, get this. Not only was he on the jury, so was his wife. Is that allowed? I've talked to so many defense attorneys. They go, "What? That's the strangest thing they'd ever heard." I mean, it's bizarre. I've never heard of a case like this, and I don't know how that happens. This is a good-sized community too. It's a community of a quarter million. It's not like it's a tiny little town in Iowa where the odds might be that you would have that happen. This is a good-sized metropolitan area, so. right, Scott? We've only got a few minutes. A few minutes left here. Um, the second trial that was over the conviction, he was found guilty again, uh-huh. uh, and then that was overturned. Uh, yeah. Were there any new witnesses, any new evidence, and then ultimately what overturned this conviction? Well, the first conviction was overturned because it came out that he had been uh, providing cocaine to the family. They said that that would be too prejudicial to the ju- to uh, the jurors to hear that. They also said that he should have had a change of venue because of the intense media publicity of the community. Second trial, they overturned the conviction because they it never it was disclosed that this uh, woman was a police informant. 
And they said that they uh, there were 78 uh, police reports that were withheld from the defense. Okay, that was and, the second trial. I see. Okay, so the first yeah. trial that was so the conviction overturned was because it was revealed the accused, Liggins, had sold drugs to the uh, yeah. parents of poor Jennifer Lewis. Uh, I mean, why would that be considered prejudicial? Why wouldn't that be considered pertinent to the case? I mean, because that points I, to access to the family and possible possible motive. That would be my um, presumption as well. I mean, I think it, it, it gives context to the relationship with the family. But the Iowa Supreme Court found otherwise and said, no, that was uh, unnecessary prejudicial information, and uh, that's why we're giving it a trial. All right, so Stanley Liggins, uh, did he actually serve any time before the before it was overturned, the conviction? Has he served any time? Years. Oh, he's been in jail the whole time. He's been in jail the whole time. How he's could that be if, the, if each conviction was overturned? They immediately charge him again. And, um, you know, and what about double, States, what about double jeopardy? Well, there isn't a double jeopardy in, 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 in play because the, the, uh, he's never been acquitted of the crime. He's, he's been, uh, found guilty. The, uh, each time the, the courts will say, okay, he deserves a new trial because the first one was handled poorly. And they'll, they'll have it again and again. And, and a lot of times in, in jurisdictions, especially if it comes up for a third trial or something, they'll say, let's not try it. We'll just see if we can get a plea deal. In this particular case, no plea deal is being sought by the prosecutors. They're just, they, they, they're, they're, they're determined to have a conviction because they believe this is the man who did this. And so, yeah, um, uh, there's no jeopardy in place because, um, He's never been uh, been acquitted of the crime. You can't just keep. If he'd been acquitted, then the, the, it all it would all be over, and there's a double jeopardy in play. But right. if he's been convicted, you can you can have repeated trials to see if there's an acquittal eventually. Okay, so as as a police reporter, someone who's covered this case intently, who's writing a book about it, who has now produced a five part uh, podcast series on it. I mean. Um, what is your what are your feelings about this case? Is is there any compelling evidence? Uh, that Stanley Liggins is not guilty. Well, of course, that's not the standard. The standard is you're presumed innocent. True. And I think the question that comes to mind is you have you have this police report that seems to be pointing away for him, uh, seems to indicate perhaps some bad conduct by the stepfather, who's missing, by the way. Um, he's last seen... Uh, uh, Less known to be homeless in New Orleans, I drove down there twice and uh, hunted for him with uh, and showed his photo around Skid Row and soup kitchens and all kinds of places. Lots of folks recognized him, but we never found him. Were were, were his stepfather and mother were sorry were Anne, um, Jennifer Lewis's um, stepfather and mother present during the trial? They both testified in the the first and second trials. Okay. All right. So, just give us a, a, just a, a taste of how this podcast series sort of flows together. The first, sure. the first episode, which aired last Monday, was about the sort of the crime scene, this horrible tragedy I, in the schoolyard. Actually, I chose to launch with all five of them on the first on Monday. Ah. So, if somebody wants to binge, they can they can listen to them all all at once. Okay. And we're going to have more coming out each week. Looking at the case, this next week we're, we talked to a bunch of criminal profilers and other people, and that's going to come out um, 
probably later uh, this week or early next, uh, and it'll, it'll have and we'll look at things that characteristics of the people who would likely do something like this and see if Stanley Liggins fits that bill or not and look at um, other people perhaps as well. So that's some of the things we're looking at. But we first, the first episode, we look at the crime itself. The second episode, we look at the life of Jennifer Lewis. And I think that's really important. Absolutely. That's why I'm doing this, because her life counts. You know, you think about John Benet Ramsey or Elizabeth Smart, the, the girl who was kidnapped in Utah. What made their why the media got focused on them was because they were from wealthy families. This child was from a very poor family, but her life is every bit as precious as a child from a from a wealthy family. So we're looking at this because her life mattered. So the third episode we, we look at, um, I believe it's. At, uh, focusing on the uh, evidence of the case. The fourth episode, we look at Stanley Liggins' life, and we also take a look at the stepfather. And, the, you know, the fifth episode, we, we start looking, we build towards the case itself and and look at a lot of the issues involved with that. And then the sixth episode, we're going to look at the psychological aspects. And we're, we're going to build on it. And we're going to try to do something like you're doing right now, where you're, uh, where we have a panel and we have a discussion about the case. And we're going to take field questions on social media from from listeners and do a whole lot of different things like this. So All right. yeah, I was, I'm very excited about it. Well, you're right. We, we, we cannot forget uh, Jennifer Lewis, uh, the victim in this horrible crime, 26, um, uh, going on 27 years later. Uh, she cannot be forgotten. Uh, a, a very tragic life and, and then cut brutishly short, only nine years old. Uh, do you, uh, we're just very, we're almost finished here, but is, do you interview, uh, Liggins, Stanley Liggins? Is he in the podcast? Well, I interviewed him 26 years ago when I was a young police reporter. He wouldn't cooperate, uh, this time around. He didn't want to talk. So I, ha- I have some impressions of him from when I interviewed him 26 years ago, but I don't have, uh, have, um, have him in the podcast itself. We've got, but we did go and get, uh, from a local television station, recordings from interviews they had done with them 26 years ago. So okay. We have his voice throughout this, this podcast. We very quickly, done very quickly, Scott. How do people uh, get the podcast? They can go to iTunes and look for suspectconvictions.com, or they can. Most other platforms that offer a, a podcast also have it, or you can just simply go to suspectconvictions.com and. You can get it there. Scott, so, thank you so much. His name is Scott. Sus- thank, Sus- you. thank you for having me. Suspectconvictions.com. Thank you, Scott Reader. All right, my website, strangeplanet.ca. Hey, don't forget the all-new theconspiracyshow.com. Theconspiracyshow.com for the uh, you fans of the TV show. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. Follow the truth. Mm-hmm.